All right, well, we find ourselves in Luke chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. Let's read our text together. Now, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and to buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50. And they did so, and he had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most prominent miracles in all of the gospel recordings. It is found in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and in the Gospel of John. And in each case, there are little differences, little different dimensions that are mentioned by the writers, little detailed differences that draw attention to certain aspects of the account. However, though in Luke's account, He gives us what we need to truly understand the purpose of this miracle. I have studied the Bible now for 30 years, and I am convinced I know less today than I did when I started. It's such a dynamic book, so deep and and rich in its uh, context. That being said, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of those miracles that is often approached in the teachings Uh, from the different perspectives of the individuals that are found within the story itself. They'll teach it from the perspective of Jesus' authority to feed and to provide for the people of Israel. They'll talk about the little boy who John tells us was the one who gave up the five loaves and two fish that he had uh, and allowed Jesus to do from them Uh, this great, incredible miracle. I've even heard it spoken uh, about through the eyes of the people sitting there, the recipients of this miracle. And yet the literary context that we find the miracle recorded in, specifically in the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, In each case, this account is preceded by the return of the disciples who have been sent out two by two by Jesus to take the uh, gospel, the uh, knowledge of the kingdom of God, and to continue in the power and the authority of God into all of the areas of Galilee 
as a boot camp or a basic training to their eventual ministry that will therefore lead them throughout the known world. And it appears to me that that literary context focuses us on the disciples within this case. As we get to this miracle, we have Jesus, of course, we have the little boy, we have the recipients of the miracles, and then we have the disciples. And in the Greek language, though the Greek language does not offer us punctuation to help us determine the grammar of the Greek language, we do see from the Greek language what are called senses and tenses. And from that, we can then determine what are the subjects, what are the verbs, etc. What are the main clauses, what are the embedded clauses to give us our main points of the structure of the account. The feeding of the 5,000 was to further illustrate to the disciples uh, what they can anticipate when they finally go out on their own to take the gospel into all of the known world. And what Jesus causes them to confront and to bring to their attention is their own personal inadequacies. Jesus wants his disciples to know that they are personally inadequate to fulfill the mission in which he has called them to perform. Now you would say, Well, why in the world would Jesus ever want to do that? Wouldn't that simply discourage the disciples from carrying on the mission uh, when they uh, would be shown and demonstrated their own personal inadequacies? Jesus knew from his perspective that the only way that he could truly have his disciples depend upon him and upon the Holy Spirit to fulfill the ministry in which he was calling them to, was to first show them their personal inabilities, their personal inadequacies. Well, how do you know that? It is interesting to me, especially when you get to John's account. Because in the Synoptic Gospels, we find that Jesus asks his disciples when they bring it to his attention that it is getting late and it's, there is a need now to send the people away that they may find lodging and food, he puts his disciples on the spot and says to them, you give them something to eat. John goes one step further. He shows us that Jesus went to Philip specifically and Jesus said to Philip, Where can we buy food enough to feed these people? And Philip responds with an analytical response and says, Well, even if we had 200 denarii, we would never be able to feed these people. Jesus wanted to show his disciples that though he may ask of them what appears to be impossible, He is not asking them to fulfill that impossibility in and through their own personal ability. He is asking them to depend on Him. He is asking them to depend on the Holy Spirit. He is showing them that 
through Christ all things are possible. And he is demonstrating for them that they will be able through him to do what appears to be impossible. Now you think about that from a point of training or discipling an individual to succeed you in a ministry in which you have prepared them for and you see the wisdom in it. As long as the disciples believed that it was up to them to bring about the results that God had instructed or desires through their own personal ability, each and every time they would be faced with a challenge above their personal ability, they would cower in its shadow and wake. They would recoil, they would retreat rather than stepping and proceeding forward. I personally believe that God will ask of you at one time in your life something that is impossible, asking you to depend on Him for the result, putting you in a circumstance that shows you and demonstrates to you that you are personally inadequate to fulfill what God may be calling you to only to bring you to a point saying, yes, now that you've recognized your personal inadequacy, now I can work in and through you, and I will get all the glory for doing so. Trust me, if we're ever going to step out of our comfort zones, we have to wrestle with our own personal inadequacies. Because often we will find ourselves led to do something that we think we just are incapable of doing, and rightfully so. It's at that point that God can say, now I will work through you. As we pick it up in verse 10, the the apostles, the disciples, now called apostles by Luke because they had been sent out. Sent out ones is the word apostles in the Greek. Uh, They had been sent out two by two to take the good news of the kingdom of God and to continue in the power and the authority of Jesus. And they came back and they wanted to tell Jesus all that had happened and occurred as they went out. And Jesus, making his way back now from the west side of the Sea of Galilee to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, to the region of Capernaum, Galilee, and one of the cities there in the region of Galilee is Capernaum. Jesus first suggests and this is a compilation of all the accounts that we have, that he and the disciples break away alone to discuss all of the things that had occurred when he did send them out two by two across the uh, region of Galilee. However, though, in their return, it appears that the crowds began to see Jesus coming back. And because of the stir in which was created through the sending of the uh, twelve, They all wanted to be around Jesus. And we distinctly get the idea from the other accounts that the disciples just wanted Jesus alone at this point. They wanted some one-on-one face time with the Lord. They needed to decompress. They needed to vent. They needed to share their excitements and even maybe their concerns about their recent missionary trip. However, though, we're going to see that when Jesus saw the people coming to him, even in a position of exhaustion, which most commentators and writers believe at this case, that the disciples and Jesus had ministered to the point where it was towards the end of the day, 
They just wanted to break away, get some alone time. Jesus had compassion on the multitudes that came. He began to welcome them. And the word welcome there in the Greek is that welcome them with tenderness and enthusiasm. Jesus wanted to show his disciples that now was the moment to minister to the people. Even though they were tired, even though they wanted to be alone and possibly just eat and get some rest, there was an opportunity that was before them that was more important than their own personal comfort. And Christ demonstrated that compassion. Of course, you know, let us remember, though Jesus was God, he was still confined to a human body and had human needs. He ate and slept just like the others did also. He was tired just like the others were also. And yet the people at that moment were more important to him than his own personal needs. Trust me, when we choose to serve the Lord, he will often, often bring us to points where we have to choose others above ourselves. And it's sometimes very difficult, but it further causes us to rely on Him, even for the personal strength to meet with a person and to show compassion and love and welcome them as Jesus would welcome them. When I do my personal devotions, and I have a devotional time separate from my biblical study time for my teaching. I get alone with the Lord in His Word and in prayer so I personally can be, uh, you know, refueled spiritually so that I may be prepared when to be called upon and needed that I have the ability to do so. You know, so often we try to be compassionate and show mercy and love one another on an empty tank. You know, and if you're like me, maybe you get a little, you know, hangry at times. You know, when you're hungry, you get, you know, you get a little grumpy. I, I, I don't think I do, but I've been told I do, you know. And spiritually, it's the same way. There are times where you just don't, you know, it, it, the phone rings and you're like, mm, you know, this is going to be a 45-minute conversation. But I am the pastor of the church to put them on hold or throw them to the voicemail. I could send this to Joe, you know. You know, it's called the art of delegation. That's the gift God gave me. Um, yet, and you know, I, I always try to prepare myself. So when I am interrupted and I have my day scheduled, as I always do, and something interrupts, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but just something interrupts your day. I'm prepared for it. Even if it's a neighbor who comes to my door looking for assistance, I want to be able to show them the love of Jesus Christ due to the fact that they all know that I'm a pastor. And I can only do that by preparing myself to do that. And Jesus often will prepare himself by getting away alone and asking the disciples to take some time to themselves. But at other times, he did say, now, okay, now at this occasion, it's important that we minister to these people. You see, Jesus saw this interruption of these people as an opportunity to display to the disciples their inadequacy, to show them their own heart. Because it's clear by the Greek that they did feel uh, encroached upon. They did kind of feel like, oh, you know, 
uh, here they are again, the people are here again, and you know, now we have to stop what we're doing and, and minister to them and, and so forth. And, you know, they became an, you know, an imposition to the disciples. And Jesus wanted to say, no, you've got to get past that. But the greatest lesson of this event is still yet to take place. Notice with me as he's come here and he looked at all of them. In verse 11, when the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them spoke to them of the kingdom of God, cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away. And notice the disciples, the twelve, the apostles, came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countrysides to find lodging and to get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. There is nothing that they are saying that is incorrect. But it is apparent from the other accounts that they did feel that this was an, you know, they were being imposed upon. It was an inconvenience for them. And they wanted Jesus to send them away. Now we see that the 5,000 men are numbered, but most scholars believe that women and children were not counted at that time. And so the crowd could have been as large as 10,000 people. And again, you know, 10,000 compared to 12, you know, that's that's a huge difference, of course. And the disciples are now looking at things already through the lens of their understanding, aren't they? They're summing it all up. Wow, it's late in the day. We're in this desolate place. We have these 10,000 some people. They're hungry, they're tired, and there's nothing for them here. Now, in all of those observations, they are absolutely correct. However, they are leaving one factor out of the equation. Jesus is standing next to them. Everything they said is true. Their perspective is correct from their point of view. But they have completely discounted the fact that Jesus was with them. You will also find that in this statement of theirs, they have already concluded what the best option is. They're a little tired, so let's send them away. And okay, we're justified in doing so because we're middle of a desolate place. We have nothing to give them. There is no lodging. We're really looking after their best interests. Again, leaving Jesus out of the equation. And undoubtedly, Jesus is looking, of course, at the people from his perspective. And the word compassion that he initially uses to, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14, Mark 6, John 6, you find he uses this word compassion upon them. And that word compassion is used in association with a verse from uh, Isaiah where Jesus looked upon the people as an individual, uh, as a people without a shepherd. It was a, a, a very endearing, tender, caring statement for him to make. And so he saw this imposition, he saw this impossibility as the perfect opportunity to display his 
authority and who he is to his disciples and in the wake of doing so, showing them their personal inadequacies. So the stage is set. Now, how often do we do exactly what the disciples do? We look at our situations from our perspective. We calculate, we do a pro and con list, we uh, evaluate our circumstances based upon our own personal limited abilities, and then choose what we believe is the best course of action to proceed forward. Thinking that the same options that we are limited to, God is limited to. You know, Jesus didn't look at the crowd, wow, there are 10,000, you guys are right. I didn't really, really think about that. They are hungry, aren't they? Yeah, they have, they've been with us all day. It's getting late. We're all tired. You know, and there's really, you know, Philip, what do you think? Where, where can we buy some food for these guys? Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe you guys should think about giving them something to eat. So often I have been brought into circumstances where I have assessed those circumstances, and from my limited point of view, I've gone back to God and said, Lord, here's the deal, like he's unaware of it. I think we got choice A, B, or C. Just let me know, Lord, which one you want to go with. And then you almost hear the chuckle from heaven. He's like, Eric, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I have realized that doing that and bringing that type of prayer to God is silly. You don't think God has options D, E, and F that you haven't even considered because of your limited perspective and your limited ability? God say, you have no idea what I'm going to do next. I can't tell you because if I tell you, you'd have a heart attack and die right there. I got to bring it into you slowly, you know. Not one of them thought that Jesus was going to proceed the way he proceeded in this particular situation. Not one of them said to one of their buddies standing next to him, you know, Peter over to John, you know, John, just watch. He's going to take some food and he's going to make it and everybody's going to eat. Just watch, man. He's going to do it. He's going to do it, and Philip's going to look like such a fool. You know, not one of them. That's why I love the honesty of the Bible so much. Because I would have been right along there with them, you know. Oh, Lord, what are we going to do? First of all, like, it's some surprise. It's some unexpected occasion that God doesn't really know what the needs are before we ask of Him of these needs. And that what we are facing is just too complicated and too difficult for God to overcome. It's our personal limitation of our understanding of who God is. So notice with me, in here in verse 13, But he said to them, You give them something to eat. (laughs) And they said, well, well... We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Of course, we've already stated that he turned to Philip 
And he said, Philip, what are we going to need to do to buy this? John 6, you can read it there. He says to the disciples in the other synoptic gospels, you give them something to eat, bringing them to the forefront and asking of them an impossibility. The five loaves and the two fish that they have weren't even something that they provided. Andrew found, according to John 6, a little boy who had simply a sack lunch that was probably prepared by his mom for him to go and to listen to Jesus and have something to eat. And of course, it's extraordinary that the little boy, of course, gave up the sack lunch, which is probably all that he had. The contents of that lunch, I believe, indicate that he was a poor young, poor, from a poor family. And yet it appears that he was willing to give Andrew everything that he had, even though it was so limited. Today, we would have read that the little kid kicked Andrew in the shin and said, absolutely no way, this is mine. Let them get something, you know. But Andrew brings this to Jesus, and the language that is used is, but all we have are these five loaves. And they weren't five loaves of bread like we know today. They, they were literally like five pitas, you know. And the fish were probably a couple sardines, literally, which were very prevalent in the area of Galilee. So it wasn't much. It was probably enough just for this little boy for that day. And he further, I should say, Andrew was further stating to Jesus in John 6, this is all that we have, Lord. This is the extent of our limitations. These five loaves and two fish, these are the extents of our ability and what we are able to provide. Never considering what Jesus was going to do next completely highlighting the personal, individual inadequacy to fulfill what God has asked them to do, and that is, you give them something to eat. They try to retort the question by saying, this is all that we have. This is all that we could find. And notice here, they even state, In verse 13, they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and to buy food for all of these people. You see their ability, their limitations, their perspective in everything that they state to Jesus. Then in contrast, we are reminded once again by Luke that there were about 5,000 men, and again, not counting women and children, which we know were there, It could have been as great great as 10,000 people. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Now the other gospel writers tell us it was hundreds. uh, Some groups were hundreds, some groups were 50. Now when you read a variant like that in the scripture, Some people want to say to you, well, here is an inconsistency. Here is a situation. Luke says there was 50. John says they were to sit in hundreds. They were actually, according to Mark, asked to sit in hundreds and fifties. Just because Luke omits the fact that hundreds were required to sit also doesn't mean that the, the historical aspect of the account is false. 
In fact, what it proves to us that there wasn't collusion amongst the gospel writers, which is more authentic than if it would be word for word in every case the same. When a lawyer is preparing witnesses in a trial, one of the aspects that the lawyers are very keen to observe and to notice as they are questioning and working the witnesses is how those witnesses answer the questions. If all the witnesses give the exact same account verbatim, they can expect or suspect that collusion is involved and that they were rehearsed in their testimony. So variants are looked for in a witness, an eyewitness account for authenticity. I just wanted to throw that out to you. So he has them sit in a a situation that I believe, believe has significant meaning, which I'll bring up in just a moment. He obviously did so, so he could, the disciples could fulfill what he was about to do and a- accurately distribute the provisions in which he was about to provide, to have a little bit more control of the situation. But I do believe that there are historical and biblical significance to what Jesus did here by having them sit in hundreds and in fifties, especially, I think it's alluded to at the end of John's account, of this particular event. Now, as he is having them sit in an organized fashion per hundreds and per fifties, he then, verse 15, and they did so, and he had them all sit down, and they, and taking the five loaves, this is Jesus, and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. He asked God, and he thanked God, I should say, excuse me, for what they did have. This is very similar to the events of Elijah back in the Old Testament. This is very similar to the uh, prophetic statements of Isaiah in the book of Isaiah, of the shepherd providing for his sheep. He asks God to bless that which they have. He is thanking God, I should say, for what they have. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And miraculously, from these five pita bread and two sardines, 10,000 possible people were fed to the word satisfaction. It means, if I may, in terms that are relevant for you, the turkey coma after Thanksgiving that you experience. Unprepared and having not worn their stretchy pants to the dinner, uh, they were completely and utterly satisfied. Nobody went hungry unless they chose not to eat. God didn't just, just tap them off, you know, so he, they could then go and find something else more somewhere else. He took care of them abundantly took care of them. I read a commentator, and I won't read him any further now after hearing what he had to say. And he wrote in his commentary, he said, you know, we shouldn't think of this as a supernatural miracle. For in that culture, he stated that once they saw the little boy providing 
the five loaves and two fish, those in the crowd would have by necessity thought, well, it's simply mealtime and pulled the food out of the sleeves of their robes that they were carrying with them. You know, we often try to explain the supernatural away in natural terms. I don't know why so many people have so many difficulties with God doing miracles. You know, it only demonstrates their limited perspective of God. And they probably are limiting God to what they are personally capable of doing. For God to provide food from five loaves and two fish is nothing in the grand scheme of things, especially if you believe the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe that, everything else is cake, literally cake, for him to do. But often, again, we reduce God to our own personal understandings, our own personal abilities, and then we uh, inadvertently um, worship an inept God. They were satisfied by the food in which was provided for them. And not only that, it says here very interestingly that 12 baskets were left over and Jesus instructed the bread, the leftover bread and fish to be, of course, gathered and placed into these 12 baskets. And, you know, some will write and said, well, this was showing that Jesus was the shepherd of Israel and fulfilling Isaiah and so forth because he's providing for his people in such a supernatural and dynamic way. That, that very well possibly could be. And I have no problem with that. But sometimes I think it's just more simple than that. The disciples walking away with each with a basket full of food would have shown them that their inadequacies were superseded by Jesus' perfect abilities, right? <laughs> Could you imagine these guys walking out? Well, we didn't have anything to begin with, and now we've all got a basket to carry on top of everything else. It would have been a constant reminder of their inadequacies and his abilities and his willingness to act within his abilities to provide for his people. His heart demonstrated not only with just saying, I have compassion upon people, but he actually acted upon that compassion to do what he did before all the people at this time. God has a tendency to do these kind of things to help us remember what he has done in and through our lives by allowing us to carry a basket home with us and saying, now what were you saying about not having anything to give them to eat? What were you saying about having to send them away? What were you saying? About, what was that, Peter? Saying something? I didn't think so. Okay, yeah. I really, I, think so. I really believe it's that simple sometimes. Now, it is interesting to me that the disciples, I truly believe, were the, at the center of this particular story. When we think about the gathering of the individuals to hundreds and fifties, this was actually a military exercise that when a military troop would eat, they would separate from a large group of people 
to individual groups to better protect their numbers and also to better protect each other. And I believe that Jesus did this to demonstrate that this is the manner in which the kingdom of God is going to be displayed to the world. Not militarily, but through simplicity. Through the people being fed and the kingdom of God being revealed to the lowliest of the earth, not to the prominent of the earth. Why do you believe that, Eric? In John's gospel, John adds a footnote by stating that after this miracle, the people wanted to make him king. I believe that they interpreted him separating them in hundreds and fifties, that this may be the beginning of his revolt against the Romans. That this was him gathering his army, and he was, but not in the manner in which they anticipated or expected him to do. And I believe that this is the beginning now, as we come to Luke 9, we are entering into the last year of Jesus' ministry here on this earth. From here to the end of the book is the last year of Jesus' ministry on the earth in his first coming. And as a result, his disciples, I believe, were being shown that not only were they inadequate to fulfill the impossibilities that he would command them, but he was able to give them the ability to overcome those impossibilities. One wrote, he said, the lesson intended primarily for the disciples was this. Do not look on your own resources, but look to and trust in Jesus' ability to use whatever resources you have to meet the needs of others in which he would have you minister to. One of my favorite scholars, Dr. Tom Constable, stated his account contrasts the inadequacies of the disciples with the ability to help the crowd. Jesus' compassion for the people also contrasted with the disciples' unconcern and lack of attention towards the people. He was using this whole thing in a dynamic way to demonstrate that he can do a lot through little. And that what I bring to the table isn't nearly as concerning to Jesus as what he brings to the table. In fact, what I bring is nothing. Just the willingness to be obedient to what God has asked me to do. Does God ever ask the impossible of people? He does it through the Bible and the Gospels all the time. He asked a man with a withered hand to extend his hand. Now that withered man could make a choice at that moment. Either I'm going to extend my hand or I'm going to try to explain to Jesus why I can't. Jesus says, well, go, go now, go extend your hand. Well, you don't know, I've, it started with carpal tunnel because of my computer work. And I now have a pinched nerve in here that goes all the way down my back and they can't diagnose it. They don't know what disc it is. Jesus is like, extend your hand. Okay, boom. The paralyzed man, when he said, take up your bed and walk. Well, Jesus, I'm paralyzed. Yeah, I, not only can I got, not get up, but I, I can't carry my bed home. But he obeyed the Lord, and the Lord allowed the impossible to take place. My favorite is Lazarus, so 
late to his funeral, and he had died in the grave for four days, calls Lazarus forward. Lazarus, come forth! I can't! I'm dead! You know. God often asks the impossible of us. And we always question God's ability. From the very Old Testament, uh, from the very back annals of the Old Testament, people are always questioning God's ability. I think of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. I'll read it to you. But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, about this time tomorrow, a sheath of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two sheaths of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Israel was in a time of complete famine. For the actual head of a donkey was going for so much that the average person couldn't even come close to affording to purchase it to sustain themselves uh, physically. Cannibalism had broken out and so forth. But Elijah says, now all this is coming to an end. The reason they were in that predicament was because God was judging them for their disobedience towards him. And Elijah said, now just tomorrow, watch, everything is going to change. And you'll be able to buy a sheath for a shekel. They responded to him by saying this. Then the captain on those, I'm sorry, and the Then the captain on whose hands the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? If God himself were to open the windows in heaven and to shower us with uh, grain and barley and so forth, could these things even possibly be in the wake of what we are personally experiencing at this moment? You see, the captain was saying this, I don't believe God can do that. I don't believe that is possible for God to do. It's impossible. If it's impossible for me, it's impossible for God. Really? And yet, but he said, that is Elijah, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Oh, you're going to see it happen. But now because you said what you said, you questioned him, it ain't happening. I believe that God will often ask you and I to do what appears to be impossible. To show us our own personal inadequacy and to cause us to lean more fully upon him and his ability. It may be a career path that you never considered before. It may be uh, some type of event or some kind of activity that you don't think you are personally incapable of fulfilling. It, it may be a ministry in which you believe God is calling you to and say, oh no, Lord, you just have the wrong person. I think of Moses, who at the burning bush gave God every reason why he can't do what God was asking him to do. And yet God through him did everything that God said he was going to do. We often want to bicker with God and debate God, and he opens the door because we've asked him to open doors of opportunity. Then he opens the door, and we don't like what we see on the other side. 
oh, this must be the wrong door. This door is for somebody else. I think the angel got it wrong when he delivered this open door to me, you know. This is for the guy down the street, maybe. And yet God's always perfect. And you know what happens when we step through those doors of what appears to be impossible? We grow as Christians. Our faith deepens. Our relationship strengthens. And we see God in, light, in a light that we've never seen Him before. Don't look at impossibilities as moments of avoidance. See an impossibility before you as an opportunity for God to show Himself strong. As an opportunity for God to bring glory to Himself. When the children of Israel were led out of Egypt, they finally came to the shores of the Red Sea. They began to bicker, they began to complain. Because of where they were on the shores of the Red Seas, there were cliffs on either side of them that were personally incapable of scaling to overcome the threat that they now saw behind them of the approaching Egyptian army. I don't believe for a minute that one of them expected God to do what God did next, and that was to part the Red Sea before them. So I ask you, what is too difficult for God? There's a lot of debate in the Christian community over a verse in which Paul wrote in Philippians where he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The immediate context of that verse shows that Paul believed that he could be sustained in times of prosperity, in times that he had very uh, little, in in times of poverty, and that God, he could be content in either or because God would strengthen him to do so. And that's true. That's exactly what the context means. However, though, I believe the New Testament is replete with examples of individuals who have been faced with impossibilities that God gave them the ability to do. So I don't think it is wrong to say that when God leads me to an impossibility, it is something that through Christ I can do. Because he is not going to lead me so, he's not going to lead me somewhere just to leave me in front of it incapable of fulfilling it. He's going to use this to draw me closer to him and then demonstrate through me his glory. And notice with me that what the, what the disciples were incapable of doing, remember? He said, but you give them something. There's no problem. Jesus knew that there was this little boy who had just a few things. And he said, through that little boy's willingness, everything has gotten done. So what you couldn't do, this little boy did. Don't be afraid of impossibilities. See them as opportunities for God to glorify himself.